BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. It is Friday. It's Anything Goes Friday, whatever you'd like to talk about. Our number, 202-808-9925. That said, there are a few things that I'd like to talk about. Uh, the the uh, 1%. Actually, I want to start someplace else. I, I, I'm going to get to that in just a second. But back when George W. Bush was president, so this was uh, at least 10 years ago. So it was, uh, let's see, I wrote Unequal Protection in 2001 as I recall, uh, 2000, 2001, it was published in 2002. And uh, I was invited to Oxford University uh, in the UK, in, in Britain, to give a speech about corporate personhood in the United States and how it was presenting itself in other countries, including the UK. And I showed up and it was a, it was a very big deal. I mean, it was a great honor. And the uh, uh, the president of the, the college that was sponsoring us, as I recall, it was Christchurch, um, but I could be wrong. But the president of the college had a private dinner for me afterwards with a whole bunch of the, the various department heads. And it was just it was it was really cool. But what happened, what, what was <laughs> just fascinating to me, this must have been like 2004. It was in that neighborhood, maybe 2003. It was right after Bush invaded Iraq. Uh, or in the year after he had invaded Iraq. So I show up at the university, and they take me to the, the, the hall where I'm speaking. And it's just like, it's like something out of an old movie. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, this, this thing was probably, the, the building was probably built 200 years ago. It's like, you know, it's all, you know, granite and looks sort of like a giant cathedral sort of thing. And... And the hall that I'm in is, you know, with the, you know, like the old Roman amphitheaters, you know, with the tiered seats going up, you know, so that the people sitting at the very top at the top row are like 20 feet above my head. And I'm on the stage out in front. And there was maybe 200 uh, people there. And most of them, the vast majority of them were students. They were people in their early 20s. And I'm there to talk about corporate personhood in my new book, Unequal Protection. But what happens is... Literally, and we all use that word way too much, but anyhow, what happened was before I could speak about corporate personhood, I got essentially heckled. And uh, not, not in a bad way, but in a, uh, you know, where do you stand? The, the young people in the room, the students, started yelling, you know, where do you stand on Bush? And words to that effect. You know, what are your thoughts on Bush? Tell us about what about the Iraq war? What you know, is your president crazy? Stuff like that. And literally, well, there I go again. Would you know? Wouldn't let me get into my talk until I address that issue. And you know, presumably, a lot of people of a lot of different political persuasions and opinions come through Oxford, and you know, they just wanted to know what's what's your deal. So I said, okay, let me just be on the record. I did not vote for George W. Bush. I do not like George W. Bush. I think he represents our country poorly. Uh, I am embarrassed by him. And, uh, you know, I think he's, he's promulgating an, uh, a vision of America as kind of the ugly American all across the world. And there was you know, polite applause. And then everybody kind of sat down and shut up and let me 
do my hour-long presentation on corporate personhood, (laughs) which was what I was there to do. And I kind of feel like we're in the same place. Louise and I were talking about this this morning. In fact, it was her suggestion that I that I that I discussed this, and I think it was spot on right. Um, where the rest of the world is looking at us, going, "Really? The president of the United States is picking a fight with this little guy in this little country and threatening nuclear holocaust to one of our allies." I mean, you know, if you take out North Korea, you're taking out South Korea. You're killing 28,000 American troops or more and, and possibly millions of people in Seoul and, and the rest of South Korea. The story in right-wing circles right now that's going around, the Republican story, is, oh, finally somebody's talking tough, right? Uh, Trump, Trump is going to scare the hell out of them because they're going to think he's crazy. And because they think he's crazy, they're going to be afraid to do anything and everything's going to be just wonderful. Now, one of the advantages of being an old fart like I am is that I remember when part of Richard Nixon's theory was that, in fact, part of his sales pitch I don't recall if it was the election of 68 or the election of 72. I'm pretty sure it was the election of 72. Um, in both cases, he said he had a secret plan to end the war. It turns out his secret plan in 68 was to sabotage the peace deal that LBJ had worked out because he was running against LBJ's vice president, Hubert Humphrey. But my recollection uh, is that his secret peace deal in 72 was never clearly articulated, but what his, what his front people were saying basically, was, you know, Nixon's a madman. He could use nukes. You know, North Vietnam, better surrender quick. And the whole Christmas bombing and everything else, all this stuff, that it was all, that this is is what was going on. And for a while, that was like, Republicans held that up like, this is a good thing, that the leaders of North Vietnam think that our president is insane. And those of you old enough to remember, you know, the Vietnam War, you you probably remember what I'm talking about. And I've heard, uh, you know, read conservative commentators saying that Donald Trump is doing the he's doing the Nixon thing. He's trying to scare the hell out of uh, Kim Jong Un to say, you know, hey, I'm a crazy man. I, you know, I don't care. I'll, I'll fire off nukes. And that that's a good thing. And the last time we were told that that was a good thing, about 2 million Vietnamese died. And as I recall, 56,000 American soldiers died. Or at least the the 20,000 or so that died after Nixon got elected. So, you know, I'm... I would love to hear your thoughts on, you know, what you, you know, what your thoughts are on that. And I'll tell you, th- these are mine. I, I think this is not a wise strategy. I think it may play well with Trump's base. And that's the problem. Just like Nixon was running for reelection and his numbers were not all that great. In 72, although, you know, uh, George McGovern turned out to be uh, largely because of the Tom Eagleton fiasco. He, he, you know, the Democrat was George McGovern and his first vice presidential candidate turned out he'd had electroshock, electroconvulsive shock therapy, uh, which is typically only done with pretty severe depression, uh, which at that time was considered a terrible mental illness. And so he had to dump Eagleton and get whoever he got. It's been a long time. I don't remember who it was. But in any case, uh, you know, but still, you know, Nixon was still had some serious currents going against him. And I think that Trump and his advisors are thinking the same. I mean, keep in mind, Roger Stone, who advised Nixon, is advising Trump. Before he died, uh, Roger Ailes, who advised Nixon, was advising Trump. So there's there's a bunch of old Nixon guys around Trump and Trump is playing the Nixon thing from Vietnam. And I would like to remind us all that Vietnam did not turn out well. 
And I just, I, and I, you know, I don't see, you know, Pence doing anything, but I don't see any, you know, savior here other than common sense and rationality. And, and frankly, it's kind of ironic, but, you know, it's, it's, uh, but, but the, the media story on Kim Jong-un is that he's a crazy, you know, he's 33 years old, that he's a crazy kid. The reality is he's not a crazy kid. Kim Jong-un came to power when he was 27 years old, controlling a totally despotic state. He had two older brothers who were both in the line of secession from his father. He succeeded in politically outmaneuvering both of them to the point that when he was 27, he became the head of North Korea. And he, and he immediately set about killing or silencing his opposition and consolidating his power. He has economically uh, slightly loosened the, the strings of power in North Korea, which has allowed that country to grow. You know, their annual GDP growth rate has been running between 7 and 9%, as well as anybody can figure. So, you know, he might even be popular in his country. It's hard to tell because anybody who speaks out against him is instantly put to death. But my point is that, here's the irony, is that I'm not relying on Donald Trump to be the rational one who's going to save us from nuclear war. I'm relying on Kim Jong-un because he has a finely tuned survival sense. He has survived this far, this long, and his family, the two generations before him, did the same thing. He is not an idiot. He, he may be, I mean, you know, you're growing up thinking you're the descendant of the sun god and all this kind of stuff. You know, he's, he's probably got a very, very bizarre and twisted mind. But he knows how to run his country, at least the way he wants to. Now, none of this should be construed as praise for Kim Jong-un. The guy's one of the planet's worst murderous tyrants. But here's the, the, the bizarre thing is when one of the planet's worst murderous tyrants is more reassuring to you than the president of the United States. That should be some kind of absolute bottom line reference point where you say, you know, there's something wrong here. Let's have a conversation about that 25th Amendment thing and putting together a panel of people who can determine, you know, as the 25th Amendment provides for it can either be the president's cabinet or Congress can create a panel of people who will sit down and say, you know, this guy is not for fit for office. Or maybe if, you know, in the 2018 elections, if, you know, the world is still here, and if the Republicans get wiped out, maybe the party will turn against Trump. But this is, this is not a good situation. This is the Tom Hartman Program. A few other things I want to talk about. The, uh, this great piece in Common Dreams, the 1% is organized and coming for their tax cuts. Is the resistance ready? Doesn't look like it. We'll be back. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. Okay, so the, the, the Korea thing, the, the added piece to this, you know, my, my question, you know, I, do you feel like the ugly American? And, and I know that there are Trump supporters out there who are just like super happy to hear Donald Trump say, you know, I know you talked that way to previous presidents. In other words, you know, that, that Democrat Barack Obama and that wimpy George W. Bush. But now you're talking to me. Right. And so there's some, some folks out there who are going, yeah, that's what we want. We want a tough guy in the White House. Well, you know, generally speaking, I don't have a problem with a tough guy in the White House as long as the tough guy is doing rational policy. Franklin Roosevelt fought World War II. Millions of people died. It was, it was a god-awful, horrific war. He ordered the, I mean, you know, the, just the firebombing of Dresden was, you know, was as, as consequential an event in terms of human life and mass destruction as was the bombing of Hiroshima. They're, they're, the firebombing of Tokyo, for that matter, was, was about equally destructive. We've had tough guys in the White House before. Jack Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis. But they didn't beat their chests. They didn't, they didn't do the, the I alpha male thing that Donald Trump is doing right now. 
and that Kim Jong-un is doing. Or maybe not. Maybe Kim is just, you know, doing the thing he's always done. I don't know. But anyhow, China came out this morning or overnight or last night. And it's one of the more less well-publicized events. But I thought it was an amazing thing. Um, and just made it very, very real. China, which presumably has nuclear weapons and the ability to, to uh, deploy them. China came out and said that if North Korea strikes us first, they are hands off. That was a message directed to Kim. You poke the United States, you hit the United States, all bets are off. On the other hand, China said, if the United States strikes North Korea first, we're at war with, with China. Do you have any idea what the consequences of a war with China would be? given how dependent we are on them for everything. We cannot build a cruise missile or a submarine or an aircraft carrier or even an airplane without parts from China. We have outsourced to China the, the core of our technology and the essence of our manufacturing capability. It was a stupid policy from the get-go. I know this is, you know, this is Reagan's great dream arguably Nixon's great dream. The Republicans have been pushing for this forever. You know, it's the whole libertarian thing. No borders, right? Who needs borders? All you need is oligarchs. Just billionaires to control everything and wonderful life. Life will be great. But that's not how, you know, it's not how it worked out. When was the last time you looked forward to sitting at your desk all day? Since getting my new X chair, not only am I enjoying the time spent at my desk much more than ever, but I can't believe how much more productive I'm being. My X chair is unbelievably stylish, and thanks to all the ways you can personalize it, it literally molds itself to my body. Trust me, this is not your grandfather's office chair. And because I don't need to keep having to take breaks or stretch my back, I'm getting more done in a day than ever before. You spend a lot of time in your office chair every day, then you need to try the X chair. In fact, here's a terrific deal just for my listeners. The makers of X chair want you to feel the X chair difference for yourself. So if you go to xchairtom.com, that's the letter X, the word chair. Tom, T-H-O-M, dot com, xchairtom.com. Not only will they knock $100 off the price, they'll even throw in a free footrest if you use the promo code Tom, T-H-O-M. So just go to xchairtom.com right now. I love my X-Chair, and you will too. So check out xchairtom.com. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And in the, in the studio with me, our old friend Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Global Exchange and Code Pink, author of the new book, Kingdom of the Unjust, behind the U.S.-Saudi connection. And by the way, if you want, you know, I've, I've, uh, I believe I've done a reading of that book and of your book. We do a book report every morning. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you've been on talking about it. But I just want to emphasize one more time, if, you, if, if anybody uh, listening wants to know what's really going on with Saudi Arabia and our relationship with it. Your book is brilliant. Absolutely. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you for joining us. We were out in front of the Saudi embassy yesterday doing a protest on an issue that very few people know about. Tell, tell us about it. It's about the siege of Awamiya. Have you heard of that? I have not. So even you, who knows a lot about a lot of things, the starting May 10th, the Saudis uh, rolled into Awamiya, a Shia town in the eastern province, they said that they were looking Saudi Arabia of Saudi within Arabia their own within their own country. They had two excuses. One is that they were going to do a redevelopment scheme in the oldest 400-year-old neighborhood there, uh, which is a heritage site for the Shia, um, but also that they were looking for 10 wanted men. Well, there's a relationship between that because that town is a town of descent. That's where Sheikh Nimr is from, who was executed at the beginning of this year. He was somebody who was telling the people during the Arab Spring that the Shias had the right to be first to be equal citizens. Um, so they came in and they've put that town under siege. They're destroying the entire town. They have been uh, killing people, destroying their homes. Uh, it looks like a war zone when you look at it now. And the U.S. press is not covering at all. And we had somebody who came in, uh, two people from Awamiya came with us yesterday to the Saudi embassy and we protested the siege of Awamiya as well as the 32 mostly young men, some of them arrested while adolescents that are on death row, all Shia, because of their protests against the Saudi regime. Or protests in favor of democracy. I mean, that came out of the Arab Spring, didn't it? That, that's right. And these people are now facing beheadings by the Saudi government. So that's why we were out there yesterday. Good on you. Good on you. 
I'm I'm just astonished by the ads that they're running on the television <gasps> here in Washington D.C. Aren't those terrible? Cutter. Oh my yeah. goodness! It's just it's mind-boggling. But what I wanted to talk to you about today, you you were in Korea last week. That's right. So tell us about your trip. Tell us what you learned. Tell us what you. I don't know how much of the last hour you were able to hear here. Um, I think you just arrived a, a little right. bit ago. Okay, so you didn't hear it. Um, I you know I just went through this whole riff about how in in my opinion, uh, you know Kim is not an irrational actor. His family is not irrational. Uh, they're they've been very successful, you know, running their little dictatorship all these years, and. Um, I find it just so uh, bizarre. I, ironic is not even a strong enough word that uh, many of us are looking to Kim Jong Un to be the sane voice in the room. <laughs> I know. Um, you know, at this particular moment in history. Um, so, anyhow, you, let me turn the platform over to you. It's, uh, what, yeah. What, what well, did being you in South Korea was so interesting because you know they have heard the rhetoric from the North for decades now. You know, they're used to these. Um, kind of crazy things that the government of, of North Korea would put out. And when I was in North Korea, you know, I would read some of their terrible English translations of some of the government propaganda, and it would just be awful stuff. But, you know, that's kind of like, that's the way the Korean government talks. What's new in the equation is Donald Trump. Talking the same and, way. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they're not used to that. The South Koreans are not used to that. So Nobody's used to that. They were way more concerned about Donald Trump. Than they were about Kim Jong-un because they've been saying, yeah, he's a, he wants to preserve himself. It's all about self-preservation. It's not about attacking South Korea, and it's a not, certainly not about t attacking the United States. So, yes, this has thrown things off. We were there invited to meet with people who had been opposing the anti-missile system, the THAAD system. And it was really interesting going to the village where this has been placed uh, and talking to villagers who said, we don't want this here. Take it back. Uh, get rid of this thing. We don't want to be in the crosshairs. Yeah, now that was that was more of a, the, the way you're characterizing it, it was more of a NIMBY response. But there's a it was national... a NIMBY response, but then, you know, they've become more sophisticated over the entire year, year that they're protesting. Mm -hmm. And now it's, we don't want it somewhere else. We don't want it anywhere. And we don't even want it. They were very sweet to us. They said, uh, we used to say, take it back to the United States. But we've since we've met such nice people like you, we now say just dismantle it, uh, that it's part of the buildup of uh, the arms race that's not good for anyone. And then we met with people in the National Assembly. We met with all kinds of people. And they're saying, look, we think that for the first time in a long time with a new president that's been pro-dialogue, we have a chance for a new president of South Korea, South who was just elected on a platform of let's work with North Korea, let's talk with North Korea, Let's uh, achieve a rapprochement. Let's amp down, you know, turn down the volume here. And your listeners has probably really not heard of what they call the candlelight uprising. And this was the uprising that got rid of the last uh, president on corruption charges and brought in president a new president of South Korea, Moon, who was swept into power on the wave of this incredibly beautiful, nonviolent, massive protest. When you see the photos, it's millions of people coming out to the streets and, of course, a much smaller population than here in the United States. So they have been very excited about what this new government might bring. And now they suddenly see, uh-oh, things are going sour really, really quickly. Right. Let's talk about the THAAD missile system for a minute. This is a... Uh uh, as I recall, uh, truck-mounted, it's, it's a mobile system. Right. It uh, can fire, uh, what, about a dozen or so missiles off the back? Well, there's uh, eight of them eight. on, yeah. And, and, and the theory, this is bullets hitting bullets, basically. Somebody's shooting a missile at you, you shoot at that, it, it hits that missile, and presumably it can't do it as the missile is taking off. They're traveling super fast. It can't do it at apogee as the missile is at the top of its arc. They're traveling super fast, so it would have to do it when it's coming back down, which, A, seems, you know, I'm curious what you know about how advanced that technology is. That's the big problem that Reagan had with Star Wars, is they could never, you know, it's how do you shoot a bullet out of the sky with another bullet? And it's just insanely difficult to do, although bullets are dumb, and th in theory these missiles are smart, um, number one. But uh, number two, if this is a nuclear warhead, and you're shooting it as it's coming down from the arc, you're blowing off a nuclear bomb over your own head. How does that work? 
Well, the way that people over there have talked to us is to say that, uh, first of all, they've been talking about the not nuclear warhead. They've been talking about the 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 the, the missiles. The uh, that the Koreans have been testing uh, and saying that the tests in the United States of this missile system have been done under, quote, perfect conditions. We in the U.S. shoot off our missiles. We in the U.S. shoot down those missiles. And um, and of course, the Lockheed Martin says we get it every time. You know, these are 100 percent. These are these are great. And um, what the South Koreans say, this is ridiculous because this is not real life. In real life, the North Koreans know that they're going to have to project a lot of missiles at the same time, that they are trying now to have missiles that don't have a straight trajectory, Mm. and they also know to use decoys. So you add all of that into the equation, and they say this missile system, this anti-missile system is just not going to work in real life. The other thing they say is about we have not had a real um, uh, environmental impact assessment to know what having this big radar system, because it comes with a massive radar system, what this means for the area surrounding where the system is located. And they also say that the range for shooting down this missile doesn't include Seoul, which is where the vast majority of the South Koreans live. Uh, They say that it's really meant to protect the bases that the U.S. has um, in uh, South Korea, rather than protecting the people of Seoul, who live only 35 miles away from the border. Wow. Wow. So uh, bottom line is the THAAD system, it, they don't this is no panacea. They feel that it's a protection for them. And you know well, there's a THAAD system in Guam as well. Yeah. And um, uh, they uh, are saying similar things there, that they don't feel protected by the THAAD system. It really feels like, to a lot of people, it's something that is making them part of the target and is then making the North Koreans or whoever feel like they have to develop more sophisticated missile systems that then you would need a more... Well, and, and what was the first thing we did when we decided we were going to take out Saddam Hussein in Iraq? We, we flew planes over and blew up his anti-ballistic missile systems, his anti, his, you know, surface-to-air radar systems, all of his defenses, his air defenses, basically. Right. This is an air defense. Yeah. So... You know, I don't know to what extent the North Koreans could do it from the air, and I don't know to what extent they've infiltrated the South and could even get the equivalent of a suicide bomber in there or something like that. But um, is, is I, I think more than anything else, it's probably a billion-dollar-plus gift to Lockheed Martin. That's the bottom line. Yeah. Yeah, that's very unfortunate. Uh, we're talking with Medea, Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Global Exchange and Code Pink, author of Kingdom of the Unjust behind the U.S.-Saudi connection, who just came back from, from South Korea, um, from Korea. Uh, we just have less than a minute left, Medea. What, what, do you, what would you encourage people to do right now? Uh, I think now we have to build up an anti-war movement again. We have to build up a movement that can mobilize people, that can contact our representatives. We had 60 representatives sign a letter. We should have hundreds of them signing a letter, say, no war with uh, North Korea. So um, I would say during this interim break that people should be calling their representatives, leaving messages on the uh, White House hotline, and joining in protests that we organize. Yeah, it seems like it's it's definitely a good time. The number, by the way, for Congress is 202-224-3121. And even though they're on their, their month-long vacation, um, you know, we, it's, it's incredible. Uh, even though they're on their vacation, they will be answering their phones and they will be doing these things. Um, what, what groups are on the front, forefront of this? Has anybody really jumped, you know, picked up this flag? Yeah, we've been having all kinds of meetings and coalitions and groups coming together. There's, um, Korean American groups that have been very active. There are, uh, groups like, um, Peace Action, uh, anti-nuke groups, one called Global Zero. Um, there's a there's a good coalition. Code that's, Pink. Code Pink, yes. Code we pink are out there, yeah. And um, we are also telling people to call the White House, which is um, uh, 202-456-1111, which you can only call it between 9 and 4 p.m. because Donald Trump has cut down the hours. Right. <laughs> I know. It's very, very strange. 
Medea Benjamin. Thank you, Medea. Thank you. Good talking. We'll be back. It's Tom Hartman University, and today we're reading from the Tom Hartman Reader. This is page 266. The chapter is titled, The True Story of the Boston Tea Party. On a cold November evening, activists gathered in a coastal town. The corporation had gone too far, and the 2,000 people who jammed into the meeting hall were torn as to what to do about it. Unemployment was exploding, and the economic crisis was deepening. Corporate crime, governmental corruption spawned by corporate cash, and an ethos of greed were blamed. Why do we wait, demanded one at the meeting, a fisherman named George Hughes. The more we delay, the more strength is acquired by the company and its puppets in the government. Now is the time to prove our courage, he said. Soon the moment came when the crowd decided for direct action and rushed into the streets. This is how I tell the story of the Boston Tea Party, now that I've read a first-person account of it. I came upon a first edition of A Retrospect of the Boston Tea Party with a memoir of George R. T. Hughes, a survivor of the little band of patriots who drowned the tea in Boston Harbor in 1773. Yes, that's the title of the book. And I jumped at the chance to buy it. Because the identities of the Boston Tea Party participants were hidden, other than Samuel Adams, and all were sworn to secrecy for the next 50 years, this volume, published 61 years later in the 1830s, was the only first-person account of the event by a participant that exists, so far as I can tell. As I read, I began to understand the true causes of the American Revolution. I learned that the Boston Tea Party resembled in many ways the growing modern-day protests against transnational corporations, and the small-town efforts to protect themselves from chain store retailers and factory farms. The Boston Tea Party's participants thought of themselves as protesters against the actions of the multinational East India Company. Although schoolchildren are usually taught that the American Revolution was a rebellion against taxation without representation, akin to modern-day conservative taxpayer results, revolts. In fact, what led to the revolution was rage against a transnational corporation, that, by the 1760s, dominated trade from China to India to the Caribbean and controlled nearly all commerce to and from North America, with subsidies and special dispensations from the British crown. Hughes notes, the author of the, this, the guy who was there at the Boston Tea Party, he writes, The East India Company received permission to transport tea, free of all duty, from Great Britain to America enabling it to wipe out New England-based tea wholesalers and mom-and-pop stores and take over the tea business in all of America. Hence, he told his biographer, it was no longer the small vessels of private merchants who went to vend tea for their own account in the ports of the colonies, but on the contrary, ships of an enormous burthen that transported immense quantities of this commodity. The colonies had now arrived at the decisive moment when they must cast the die and determine their course. A pamphlet called The Alarm was circulated throughout the colonies and signed by the enigmatic Rusticus. One issue made clear the feelings of colonial Americans about England's largest transnational corporation and its behavior around the world. Their conduct in Asia for some years past has given simple proof how little they regard the laws of nations, the rights, liberties, or lives of men. They have levied war, excited rebellions, dethroned lawful princes, and sacrificed millions for the sake of profits. The, rev the revenues of mighty kingdoms have entered their coffin coffers, and these not being sufficient to glut their avarice, they have, by the most unparalleled barbarities, extortions, and monopolies, stripped the miserable inhabitants of their property and reduced whole provinces to, indigen and, to indigence and ruin. Fifteen hundred thousand, it is said, perished by famine in just one year, not because the earth denied its fruits, but because this company and their servants engulfed all the necessaries of life and set them at so high a rate that the poor could not purchase them. After protesters had turned back the company's ships in Philadelphia, New York, Hughes writes, In Boston, the general voice declared that the time was come to face the storm. The citizens of the colonies were preparing to throw off one of the corporations that for almost 200 years had determined nearly every aspect of their lives through its economic and political power. They were planning to destroy the goods of the world's largest multinational corporation, intimidate its employees, and face down the guns of the government that supported it. The East India Company's influence had always been pervasive in the colony, colonies. Indeed, it was not the Puritans, but the East India Company that founded America. The Puritans traveled to America on ships owned by the East India Company, which had already established the first colony in North America at Jamestown in the company-owned Commonwealth of Virginia, stretching from the Atlantic Ocean to the Mississippi. 
The Commonwealth was named after the Virgin Queen Elizabeth I, who had chartered the corporation. Elizabeth was trying to make England a player in the new global trade sparked by the European discovery of America. The wealth that Spain began extracting from the New World caught the attention of the European powers. In many European countries, particularly Holland and France, consortiums were put together to finance ships to sail the seas. In 1580, Queen Elizabeth became the largest shareholder in the Golden Hind, a ship owned by Sir Francis Drake. The investment worked out well for Queen Elizabeth. There's no record of exactly how much she made when Drake paid her share of the Hind's dividends, but it was undoubtedly vast, since Drake himself and the other minor shareholders all received a 5,000% return on their investment. Plus, because the Queen placed a maximum loss to the initial investors of their investment amount only, it was a low-risk investment. Low risk for the investors, at least. Uh, Creditors, for example, could be left unpaid if the venture failed. This was the the first modern-day limited liability corporation. Book the Tom Hartman Reader. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Wow. The, the, I don't know if you've seen this piece in, uh, by James Downey over at The Washington Post. Uh, this NSC ex-staffer's memo is crazy. Trump's reaction is more disturbing. But uh, Foreign Policy a magazine published this remarkable memo. Uh, this, this is by, uh, James, yeah, as I said, James Downey, uh, by Rich Higgins, who used to work for uh, the national security. He was a national security advisor to H.R. McMaster. And uh, quoting from the Washington Post, the memo contends that the president, that'd be Trump, is the target of a vast conspiracy spearheaded by so-called cultural Marxists who have allied with Islamists and captured the media, among other groups. The deep state, academia, global corporatists, and leaders of both parties. That Higgins worked for the NSC is disturbing enough, but more disturbing is that Trump, who saw the memo when it was passed to him by his son, Don Trump Jr., was furious at Higgins' removal, a sign of the scary conspiratorial depths the president has already descended to. Wow. Kyle in Chicago. Hey, Kyle, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. First, I'd like to uh, thank you and... uh for pointing me towards uh, the books by Milton Mayer and Jack Forbes. They've been really great to read after the election, especially. Yeah, you're welcome. They're, they're, they're both great books. Uh, neither one of them are still with us, but their books live on. Yes, yes, I agree fully. Um, and the reason I called is I've been curious as to what motivates oligarchs to want to amass more, more wealth and more power. And I've been trying to run these hypotheses in my head to, to try to figure out and understand why that would be. And I'm confused because um, they already have so much wealth and power that they can influence elections and, and policy positions and, and pull the strings of government throughout all nations of the world. And it's, it, to me, it always felt a little too facile of an argument to just blindly call them uh, antisocial or uh, greedy. have degrees of Sagan? Or greedy. Yes, yes. There's an emotional part of me that wants to like give them a hug in a way because I feel as though they're just lonely and miserable and have no coping mechanisms whatsoever to be okay feeling sad, being okay feeling scared, being okay feeling disappointed. And I'm I'm curious is the the drive and the motivation to amass all this wealth and all this power, just an avoidance technique to um, not feel sad, to not feel scared, to not feel disappointment, and we are all just pawns in their game to or, or victims ensure. of their game. Yeah, um, inadvertent uh, in all probability. I I agree with you, uh, Kyle. I've I've said this many times on the air. I've said it in writing. I've written about it. Um, they, uh, last week, I, I had a, an Uber driver who was uh, telling me about how she had been taking in homeless people uh, for the last couple of years. Uh, just the, it was her personal ministry is how she described it. And, uh, you know, taking them into her home and or helping them, you know, get through things. And she talked about this uh, one particular woman um, who had just become homeless. She had been kicked out of her apartment and uh, her apart and she was a hoarder 
And she said, "This." Mm -hmm. She said, "It's amazing. This woman lived in a in a uh, an efficiency apartment. I mean, it was literally one room that was you know uh, with a bathroom attached to it, but the kitchen, the living room, the you know, it was all one giant room or a small room." And she said there was stuff from the floor to the ceiling, old newspapers, every tin can this woman had ever opened, uh, you know, uh, uh, all the packaging material for everything that she had, you know, that had ever, you know, just, it was, she was just going through this list of all this stuff. And she said, you know, there was these very narrow paths through that you could walk from the door to the, to the stove and from the stove to the, to the bed. And that was about it. And everything else was all this stuff. And, uh, you know, and, 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 and she was describing this. She said she was a hoarder. And she said, you know, I've, I've dealt with schizophrenics. I've dealt with uh, people who just aren't all that bright. I've dealt with people who are drug addicted. She said, but nothing was as difficult as dealing with this hoarder. Because as, uh, as she was ripped away from her apartment with all her stuff, even all the stuff was junk, she felt absolutely bereft. She felt like her identity had been torn from her. Like there was no more there there. Like her life was coming to an end. And, uh, and, 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 and I, you know, as she was saying this, I was thinking, I wonder if that woman's hoarding compulsion, and it is a compulsion. It's a, it's a subset of obsessive compulsive disorder. It, and, and it comes out of, in all probability, if we're looking for a psychological answer, it probably comes out of a feeling, you know, some deep-seated feeling of insecurity. If I can only get enough stuff, then I'll be safe. Yeah. Um, but it also may just come out of a neurochemical imbalance. It could be that, you know, there's a, a gene in the wrong place, the wrong allele has been flipped on, uh, you know, or somebody was exposed to some chemist, some sort of uh, noxious chemistry in utero, and uh, they were just born with a brain that's broken in, in this particular way, that they have hoarding syndrome. And I was just, and in fact, I was, I said it out loud to her, the car, I, I don't think that it, it meant that much to her because she'd never, uh, you know, I, I, I said, do you think, do you, do you think that it's possible that that hoarding syndrome that that woman, that homeless woman that you took in, um, is, was experiencing is the exact same thing that billionaires in America, or not all billionaires, but, you know, a few, the ones who are like just aggressively more, 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 more. I don't care if it kills the planet. I don't care if we're polluting the air. I don't care if we're dumping poisons in the stream. I don't care if there's cancer clusters downwind from our ref refineries. We want more money. And if that was just the exact same thing, only where what was being hoarded was mansions, swimming pools, and and trillions of dollars in checking in bank accounts. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, her her response was, "I've never known a rich person, so I don't know." Uh, my response was, "I've known a few rich people, um, and I, I absolutely believe that to be the case. I, I think that what, what what we are looking at, and and by the way, we used to call it this. There was an op-ed in the Washington Post last week." about how we used to call great wealth something to be, uh, you know, uh, concerned about, right, societally. It, we used to view it as something that had as much of a downside as an upside. And now we just simply celebrate great wealth. And, and I'm, I'm convinced that there are some folks who have hoarding syndrome, but they were born wealthy. And so they applied that hoarding syndrome to what they could hoard. And it wasn't tin cans or pizza boxes or newspapers. It was money and or properties, money and properties. Donald Trump has, has hoarded quite a few properties around the world. And, uh, you know, I think that, you know, we have to recognize this as a mental illness that's capable of damaging our society. I, you know, we've got massive poverty in the United States. We've got a, a middle class that's being devastated because, in my opinion, of the hoarding syndrome that's being exhibited by probably just a couple of dozen billionaires in this country. And, and the Supreme Court has empowered them to do great damage to both our economy and our body politic by, by you know, certifying that their, their great wealth is somehow protected under the First Amendment uh, free speech provisions. And, and, you know, in my opinion, the Supreme Court's totally wrong on that. But that's my theory on it, Kyle. Am I making sense? It, you're making complete sense. I agree fully with that, that, that hoarding aspect, that, that gluttonous need to intake everything possible so as to avoid feeling, quote, hunger, right. or yeah. any, any of those negative emotions that we've attached. Yeah, I, th I think that's what's going on. And I don't know how to treat it. I, all I know is that you, you historically, we have had societal um, interventions, uh, things like the estate tax and the, uh, and the top uh, income tax rate 
And, and in the UK, I believe, they've even done a wealth tax in several other European countries um, that discourage hoarding of money. But we've got a serious problem with it in this country. Kyle, i got to move along, but thank you for the call. Very thought-provoking topic. Connie in Reno, Nevada. Hey, Connie, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, I just want to thank you for every, all your inspiration you give us every day. And I believe next year I'm going to try and retire and run for some kind of office. I don't know why. Good on you. That's great. I'm going to give it a shot. And I got to tell you, one of my pet peeves, and I'm so tired of it, and I want to know your take on this, is uh, the charity system in this country. By, you know, noon every day, I have been hit with five to ten different requests, either on national news or local news or at work or on a billboard to donate. And, you know, I'm about your age group there, and I don't remember this back in the 60s and 70s. It seems like... You know, when we cut all the taxes for the rich, it's like that's where the money used to go in our taxes that would provide all these services. That's right. And every time I mention it, people just give me a dumbfounded look. And I think if we start looking at different charities and when they started, it probably most of them were after 1980. Yeah, well, and and medicine didn't used to be so expensive. I mean, I remember back in the 70s running a business and paying $35 a month for full Blue Cross Blue Shield for every one of my employees um, you know 35 dollars per person but still it was cheap you didn't go you didn't you didn't go broke having a baby you know we had three of them and uh, yeah, I mean, we had one at home but uh, you know still you don't go you didn't. and and you know everything has been profitized as a result of Reaganomics I'm with you thank you for the call we'll be right back welcome back Tom Hartman here with you some stories in the news that I think are worthy of uh, sharing ranting riffing whatever the this is uh, by Mark Hand. It's over at Think Progress. Top utilities are spending a lot of money to elect Republican governors. Now, ask yourself, why would a utility, a company that manufactures electricity and sells it to customers, why would they care what party the governor is from? Why would it turn out that they're giving a pile of money to the Republican Governors Association and to Republican candidates for governorships rather than Democrats. Why would, why would private for-profit utilities be doing this? Well, as Mark Hand writes, governor, governors can have a significant impact on the activities of utility companies in their states, whether it's appointing members to state regulators, uh, commissions, or developing energy policy. Most recently, Republican governors in Maine and Indiana, Indiana would be Mike Pence, by the way, playing important roles in impeding the growth of clean energy in their states. In Indiana, this was Pence's successor, but you know, Pence was all over this too. In, in Indiana, Governor Eric Holcomb signed a bill that shreds incentives for rooftop solar delivering a blow to solar installers and their customers. In Maine, lawmakers failed to override Governor Paul LePage's veto of a solar bill aimed at boosting rooftop solar growth. The actions by the Republican governors were supported by the utilities, the electric utilities in their states. There are two gubernatorial elections in 2017, 36 of them coming up next year in 2018. 26 of these seats are currently held by Republicans. With West Virginia's Jim Justice recently switching to the Republican Party, the GOP now holds 34 governorships in all-time high. And then they talk about how this, you know, this is a big thing. The utilities really don't want Democrats in office because Democrats might support things like your having solar panels on your home and saving a pile of money on your electric bill and, and, making the world a cleaner and safer place. All things that are anathema to Republicans. Republicans want you to pay the highest electric bill possible because they're getting kickbacks from the utilities. Republicans, you know, don't care if the air is dirty and people are poisoned. You know, their billionaire donors can live in air-conditioned 30-bedroom mansions. Republicans don't care about the state of democracy in your state. They just want control because they want the money, which goes to the power. In its report, utilitysecrets.org found that electric utilities, their affiliated companies, and their their executives contributed a total of $1.154 million 
to the Republican Governors Association just in the first six months of this year. $1.154 million. How much money did they give to the Democrats? $286,000. Less than a quarter. 15 companies surveyed by UtilitySecrets.org contributed money only to the Republican Governors Association. Five companies or associations, Dominion Energy, PSEG Services, Southern Company, Excel Energy, and the Edison Electric Institute, which is the main trade association for the electric industry, contributed money to both Republicans and Democratic Governor Associations. Um, only one utility contributed solely to Democrats. That was Puget Sound Electric. Bloody, uh, bloody, blah, blah, blah. Utilities also donated 271000 to the Republican Attorneys General's Association, only 65000 to the Democrats. Pretty, pretty transparent what's going on here. Uh, pretty straightforward. I mentioned the 1% is organized and coming for its tax cuts. Is the resistance ready? The headline of the article by Andrea or Andrea Germanos, uh, staff writer over at CommonDreams.org. Uh, launched Wednesday. This is the American Action Network, which is a uh, basically a, a Paul Ryan group, is spending two and a half million dollars on tele television ads that say, quote, America's tax, tax code is sabotaging our country, end quote. Uh, this, this is uh, one of many right-wing groups, basically all funded by hoarding billionaires. Uh, indeed, Andrea writes, indeed, the ad comes amidst promotional efforts by Koch brothers affiliated groups to bolster the Republican tax cut endeavor, including an ad blitz of their own and a lineup of events in 36 states. There's also a more stealth effort underway, far closer to the Oval Office. According to a new report by Bloomberg, the White House has taken a page from the George W. Bush's administration's uh, by gathering a red team to strategize, strategize a successful tax rewrite. They're calling this a tightly orchestrated process, all hands on deck. In, uh, the members of, these, of, the, of, these, uh, of this red team gathering led by White House Director of Legislative Affairs Mark Short include representatives from major power centers, the Office of American Innovation, led by Jaron Kushner, Treasury Department, led by Secretary Steve Mnuchin, Vice President Mike Pence's staff and Gary Cohn's National Economic Council. So they are pulling out the big guns. And as Indivisible says in pushing back, here's the first thing to know. This is not going to be true tax reform. Calling it tax reform suggests they intend to close corporate loopholes or address the growing wealth inequality that the current tax code fuels. But that's not what Republicans have in mind. Instead, they want tax cuts for the wealthy and tax cuts for corporations paid for by taking away Medicare, Medicaid, and education funding. Since they want to pass their tax cut plan through the Senate with only 51 votes, they have to follow the rules of reconciliation. You know, blah de blah goes through that. Um, meaning that in order to make their tax cuts for the wealthy permanent, they have to have deep cuts to entitlements. So this is the next big project. Right? I, think the, I think the whole Trump care thing is dead, although never say never. We're talking vampires here. But uh, it, it sure looks like, you know, this is, this is the direction things are going. By the way, did you know that the tech sector accounts for 23% of the standards in poor 500 value? This is uh, from the Lex column in, uh, in the Financial Times. Uh, it, it went from around 2 or 3%, barely a blip 10 years ago. The sector now approaches 8% of, of the value of the U.S. corporate bond index. In other words, high-tech companies in Silicon Valley have borrowed more money than people have borrowed in the field of consumer goods, real estate, or retail, or and retail. Tech accounted for 3% of issuance in, in 2004, 10 billion. Now it's $100 billion in bonds that they're issuing. They're borrowing money. It hit 20% of corporate issuance for the first time. In other words, there's a bubble forming. And it's forming around the tech stocks and the tech companies. And uh, the Financial Times is a little concerned about this. <laughs> if you looked at the VIX lately. Oh, and finally, just the headline is enough. Indiana Republicans keep blocking early voting in a major Democratic county. Meanwhile, a Republican-friendly county has no problem with expanding early voting. Yeah, Indiana, Mike Pence country. It's so good.
You know, my shaves were super frustrating before Harry's came along. I just didn't get that close shave and smooth glide that Harry provides. Harry's provides. I use Harry's because it's the best shave for me. And now Louise is using Harry's, too. She loves the smooth, close glide, too, on her legs. Harry's is a high-quality shave that's better for your face or your legs and your wallet. Great news. Harry's is so confident you'll love their blades. They're giving you their set for free. Just cover the shipping. Your free trial set includes the ergonomic razor handle, the five precision-engineered blades with lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. I've partnered with Harry's to bring you this incredible offer. Head over to harrys.com slash Tom. That's T-H-O-M, harrys.com slash Tom to get it now. Get started with Harry's today and get their free trial offer for free. All you cover is just a couple bucks in shipping. To get your free trial set, including a handle, blade, shave gel, and tra- travel blade cover, go to harrys.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. That's harrys.com slash Tom. Don't wait. Get started with Harry's today. Welcome back. Janice in American Falls, Idaho. Hey, Janice, what's on your mind today? Hello. Hi. Um, it's really hard to follow you because the phone and the TV don't coincide right now. Yeah, and, and we're having a problem today. We've not been able, we've got some sort of a technical problem in delivering our show to Free Speech TV. So um, on the Free Speech TV side, you're, they're actually playing yesterday's show. So, But anyhow, let's talk about whatever you want to talk about, Janice. Well, I was hoping that between you and me and all of the viewers, we could uh, contact the Democrats in our in our uh, state capitol to nominate Al Gore and um, Bernie Sanders for the 2020 election because they they are already trusted. They're all well known. They've already had the votes and. Uh, you know, Trump is already campaigning and we need to get somebody out there ahead of the game. Yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical that Al Gore is, has any interest in running for political office again. Uh, I, I spoke with him, uh, geez, it's been six years, seven years, maybe eight years ago, but uh, he at that point in time was clearly just fried by the political process. And, uh, uh, you know, I introduced his, uh, his speech in Portland and, and we spent some time together. Um, and, and Bernie, you know, we'll see what Bernie's going to do. But right now he's very focused on being an effective United States senator. I, I think that it, there are a number of good potential candidates on the Democratic side, and a number of them are getting, you know, basically doing the things that you do before you run for president. You know, you write a book, you start raising your public profile, you get out there. I, you know, I see uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren doing this. I see Kamala Harris doing this. I see Cory Booker doing this. Uh, there's, there's, you know, a number of people who are potential Democratic nominees or Democratic uh, uh, contenders for the White House, and I think it's going to be a real interesting 2018. We're seeing uh, Democrats all over the country who are stepping up and saying, "I'm going to run in uh, races that never have even been contested because everybody just assumed the, the Republicans would win." So. Uh, My thinking was that uh, Al Gore and Bernie Sanders already have the will of the people behind them. They're well known. You know, they've already been voted for. Yeah, I I don't disagree. But they but, you know, times change, people change. And, uh, you know, neither one of them are. Well, I you know, I can't speak to Bernie. Bernie has kind of left it in the, uh, you know, open in the air. But, uh, you know, well, we'll see. Janice, I got to move along, but thank you for the call. Jimmy in Arkadelphia, Arkansas. Hey, Jimmy, what's on your mind? Yes, Tom, how are you? I'm well. Um, the, the question I have is that with the situation with North Korea going on, you know, Russia, it's in their neighborhood. If, if there's a war, they're going to have some effects from it. And why aren't they speaking out more? China well, it's in, it's in China's neighborhood. I think the Russian... The southern Russian border with the northern Chinese border has to be hundreds, if not a, more than a thousand miles away from North Korea. It's that far. Well, yeah. I, th- I thought it was closer. Well, I, but still, that's on their side of the world. Um, our side of the world is way, what is it, 6,000 miles away or more? Yeah, other than Guam and, yeah, and our yeah. allies, you know, South Korea and Japan and Taiwan. Uh, but why haven't they even spoken up about this situation? Who's they? I just don't understand. Why hasn't who spoken up about it? 
I'm sorry, Russia. Why hasn't Russia spoken up about it? I think every country in the world is looking at this this verbal uh, testosterone match between Donald Trump and Kim Jong Un and going, holy cow, I don't want to go near that. Uh, you know, if, if, if I was, yeah. you know, I mean, any government, Russian government, uh, Chinese just came out and said, you know, because North Korea is basically a client state to the Chinese. Uh, the Chinese came out and said to Kim, if you attack the United States, we will not defend you. And they said to us, if you attack North Korea first, you're, you're declaring war on us too. And so the Chinese have drawn a very clear line here. And let's hope that that, if nothing else, that that restrains Donald Trump, because this is, this is getting, this is getting wacky. Jimmy, thanks for the call. Abraham in Escondido, California. Hey, Abraham, what's up? Hey, uh, first time caller. Uh, Thank you. Uh, uh, well, uh, okay, so I wanted to ask you about um, the four missiles that North Korea says they want to shoot towards Guam. It's interesting. It almost sounds like a, uh, a test of our anti-missile system. Nobody knows if we're going to use it or not. Clearly, uh, if they're shooting as far as Guam, if the thing went, you know, 30 extra miles, it would hit U.S. territory. So we're sort of obligated to try and shoot them down where we haven't been in the past. Right. And uh, shooting a single missile obviously isn't much of a test. You could miss one or hit one. But, you know, three out of four, four out of four, one out of four, that gives them really good information for whatever they do next. Well, it's a huge risk for Trump. Because if he chooses to shoot down the, the, the four North Korean missiles, let's assume that they actually shoot them, which I think is up in the air right now. I, I'm guessing that Kim is starting to get a little rattled, too. Um, but if they shoot them and he tries to take them out and we only take and we don't successfully intercept all four of them, you're right. It's a, it's a giant experiment, and not just for Kim, but for every other country in the world that might have an adversarial relationship with the United States that may someday involve missiles. And, and uh, you know, our, our anti-ballistic missile technology, you know, while our defense contractors, as Medea Benjamin was talking about in the second hour of the program, you know, uh, Lockheed Martin and the other defense contractors are like, hey, everything's great. This thing works all the time. Just super. Well, yeah, it works all the time on a clear day in California on a test range when you know when the missile's going off. But, you know, they've, to the best of my knowledge, these things have never been tried in real time, in real combat situations, or in this case, even you know, a, a, uh, a real world situation that doesn't involve combat, but that does involve actual live missiles. And so, uh, you know, I, I don't know what the level of confidence that Trump and his generals have in the THAAD system is, but if it's not 100%, they would be, I would think they would be advised not, you know, just to let Kim do it, get it out of his system and just move along and let's start, you know, working very closely with the Chinese. Uh, to try to uh, change this or take Kim's off. You know, he said, if you stop the war games off my coast every year or twice a year, I'll stop developing missiles. I'll stop shooting off missiles and testing nukes. A freeze for a freeze. That sounds reasonable. Anyhow, Abraham, thanks for the call. I'm here with you. Happy to have you with us, William in Bloomington, Indiana. Hey, William, what's up? Hey, Tom, how you doing? My Just first great. time calling your show. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening on SiriusXM, too. What's on your mind? Well, I wanted to say I'm a retired veteran Marine Corps, and I served under and worked for General Mattis. Okay. And, and do you remember, maybe about a little more than a month ago, Donald Trump had a meeting with, all his, with his cabinet and his staffers, and they all took turns going around the horn kissing his ring and saying how happy they were to wash his feet, so on and so forth. When he got to General Mattis, he was the only one that didn't do that. That's right. And what he did was to praise the troops. Yep, who I remember it well. Serving. Yeah. And uh, from my knowledge of General Mattis, is the guy, is he's hard, but he's fair. He, his priorities were the mission and then the troops in that order. Of course, the mission is all-encompassing, but that's how he worked. And one more comment I wanted to make. <clears throat> if this guy, you know, he seems to present himself as the wise adult among all of Donald Trump's inner circle. Mm -hmm. And if he continues to do that, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised that as, as uh, uh, Trump's regime starts to disintegrate, that they start calling for General Mattis to run for president. What, what, what do you think? I don't think he's well known enough 
And I think that he's tainted by Trump. So I'd be very surprised if that happened. But uh, I, I, you know, if you've served with him and, and you have a high opinion of him, uh, you're not alone. I mean, there's a lot of people who have known him and, and uh, members of Congress who voted to confirm him who have a very, very high opinion of him. Um, so, you know, hopefully he can be the adult in the room for Donald Trump. But so far, I don't know. I don't know. You, you think? Thanks again for taking my call. You're welcome. Thank you, William. Thank you for the call. Matthew in Smithfield, North Carolina. Hey, Matthew, what's on your mind today? Hey, happy Friday, Dr. Tom. Thank you. Um, I'll tell you what, um, the people, I, I'm an insurance broker. Um, I know the insurance business, why it's happening the way it's happening. We've been containing costs. The premiums are going crazy because single payer is the reality of a non-capitalistic, beastly system of delivering medicine. But the Republicans I work with are just so unhinged, they can't even talk confidently about that. But my point was, my, my, the reason I called was this. Is I think there is one person who can temper all of this malfeasance in electoral politics, and that's Elliot Spitzer. Um, and the reason that I bring Elliot out is because of his ability to fight against what is the most corruptive element in our politics, and that is the money. And I just wanted to see what you thought about that. Tom. I agree with you, Matthew. I'm a big fan of Elliot Spitzer. If you've ever watched the movie Client Number Nine, which is a documentary about how one of the uh, billionaires and their buddies, Roger Stone, who uh, are backing Donald Trump, took down Elliot Spitzer and, uh, according to the movie, committed several fel federal felonies in the process. Um, Spitzer was being groomed to be president. He was going to he and he would have been the next FDR. He was talking like FDR. He was following the same career path as FDR. Not the same, but, you know, close through New York politics, New York state politics, New York city politics. And uh, and and he was a hell of a prosecutor and, and, and had the potential to be a hell of a governor. And I think he could have gone from New York governor to president of the United States. Uh, unfortunately, you know, he he had a you know, he had a, a, a thing going with a hooker and, you know, it just doesn't work <laughs> to become president. Um, but uh, take a close look at Eric Schneiderman. Eric Schneiderman is the guy who is now the uh, New York, uh, the, the attorney general, the state attorney general for the state of New York, who is exercising some considerable oversight over Wall Street. And I think he's got a lot of these billionaires running scared. I'm, I'm very, very impressed by Eric Schneiderman. So uh, I, I doubt Spitzer has much of a political career, at least on a national stage, because his name has been so badly slandered by, by the events and by the Republicans exploiting those events. But uh, I, I think Schneiderman, Schneiderman has it. Matthew, thanks for the call. Coming up tomorrow, we'll have the latest news and information from Wall Street and Main Street, all points in between, plus the best of the rest of the news. And don't forget, democracy begins with you. Get out there, show up, participate, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.